0: Before you, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to look at what you'd have us to see from these, these rules that you gave the, your children to, to abide by. And just ask you to lead us and guide us in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If there be a controversy between men, and they come into judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked and he sh- and it shall be if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten because before his face according to his fault by a certain number 40 stripes he may give him and not exceed lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes then the brother would seem vile unto you if the ox shall, you you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn so we're going to look at that because it's two different paragraphs so so we look at this, if there be a controversy, a dispute, a quarrel, some kind of a case that needs to be dealt with, and the, between two men, and they come unto judgment, or they, basically we would say they go to court, and the judges judge them, and they, shall, and they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. They shall declare the righteous man and vindicate him, and they shall punish the wicked and that's what good judges do. And this is this is a line that the uh, way of the master uses a lot of times when they're evangelizing. People how many times you've had it, had it, heard somebody say when you're witness, well I hope my good outweighs my bad when I stand before God. Well, when you go to court and can uh, for a case, you're not convicted on the good thing you know you do you're convicted on what you've done wrong, what law you violated, not, not all the good that you, that you have done. And this is what he says, the judges will vindicate the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it says, and if the wicked man has done something worthy of being beat, and so we, we look at this, the, there were basically three different judgments that could happen if you remember these different laws that we went in. First was restitution. If you took something from somebody, you were to pay back what you took plus 20%. So if you took, you took one, one thing, you gave back more than you, you took. If you took an animal, you gave back more than one animal. So this was a serious, this helped per, to prevent theft because if you stole and got caught, it was going to cost you. If you could not afford to pay it back, you became their servant until you had paid off what you what you owed them, the other payment was this idea that you could be beat, and then the other one was death, so that you really didn't have too many rules. You either you either died, got beat, or you became the person's servant to pay back what you owed what you owed them, and uh, they didn't lock you away in prisons at the, in those days. The prison was a you know you were confined for a very short time until you could be put. Until your case went to court. And they probably beat you really bad court. Well, this is, this is the restriction that God puts on him. Yeah. He goes, first off, if you were to be beaten, verse 2, if, the, if it shall be, if the man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten before his face. The judge had to witness the punishment. He could not just say, well, you're worthy, you're worthy of punishment. Go and take him away and, and beat him. This was the way the world did it, just beat them. And God put an re- even further restriction. He says, according to his fault, by a certain number. So when the judge made the case, he would say, this is worth this many strikes. Well, we'll get, down, we'll get down there in verse 3. We'll get down there in verse 3. But not always, not every crime was the maximum. In most cases, it, you might be saying, well, these worthy of, you know, 15 lashes or 20 lashes, but that was part of their sentence. Now the world just beat people. And we see this in Jesus. When Jesus was beaten, a lot of, I've heard a lot of pastors say that Jesus only took 39 stripes, but he was not beaten by Jewish people. He was beaten by the Romans and the Romans had no such rule. The the Roman, the Romans, when they scourged somebody, they had only one rule: they were not allowed to kill the person. They could take them as close as they possibly could to death, but they could not kill them while they scourged them. And they got good at being able to beat these people for a long time and keep them alive. They were very cruel, but God says, "I'm going to have you are going to have mercy. You're not just going to beat these people." Until they die. And that's the way the world often was. And it says in verse four, uh, 3. As many of you said. Forty stripes he may give him. And not exceed. Lest if he should succeed. And beat him above the many stripes. Then the brothers should seem violent to him. Or dishonored. Now what the Jews did in practice. Is they would never do 40 stripes. And you read this a lot in the New Testament. Paul said I was beaten third, uh 40 stripes less 1. The the Jews practiced just beating people 39 times as a maximum punishment so that they didn't actually ever cross that 40. They didn't lose that way if they lost count they never crossed 40. And we've talked about this a lot of times. The Jews did a lot of this making rules really big so you don't accidentally cross over. So they said, "Okay, you're not going to you can never go 40 lashes, you can only go 39." and part of that was so the max was 40 and they're going to go this they go this is our mercy you can only take we're only going to give you 39 but when you're being beat or flogged it uh, 39 is not not much difference between 39 and 40 and the the Jews used a rod pretty much on it so that it wasn't quite as bad as what many places do a lot of places used a whip or in the Romans used the the flagellum, which we've talked about, had seven, seven to nine leather stripes, uh, strips and they were weighted down with bone or metal or, or even glass in them so that they would do maximum damage to the body. And so each stripe, every time the Romans hit you, you didn't just get one slash, you've got seven slashes. And because they were weighted, they usually cut deeper into the body. And the thinner the thinner the cord, the more likely you were to get cut, which is why whips are so, so harsh, especially the end of a whip cuts deep. So and God is saying you can only go so far. And we've looked at this many times in our laws. Even as we read these laws, they seem so brutal, so harsh. But God is saying you're not going to be like the rest of the world. The rest of the world, when you get beat, you get beat until you're unconscious or dead. He goes, you cannot do that. You're going to have a set number of stripes that can be laid to you, and the judge is going to determine that before you start. And so the judge looks at it and says, okay, you deserve five stripes, then you would be beat five times, and then it would stop. If he says you deserve 10, it would be 10, and then you had to stop. And it had to be done in front of the judge. The judge just couldn't say, well, go ahead and beat him 39 times, you know, uh, he stole a penny, beat him 39 times is not what you were going to see. So each time of a was only five or ten a judge would have to watch. The judge had to be there to watch. And this was not too long ago that this was the way most places did when a judgment was made. The person who condemned the person had to, to be there. We also know, if you remember several chapters ago, if you were a witness to, uh, on, a, on the crime, and you had testified against the person, you had to witness the judgment, especially a death sentence. You had to watch that person die, and the idea was that if you had committed perjury and not gotten caught, but you were going to basically be haunted the rest of your life for what you had, the person's, the innocent person's life that you had participated in, and this is what god saying i 'm going to have mercy, you are going to have mercy you 're not going to beat them until they 're senseless and then this one he kind of throws in, and this is interesting you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn and what does that mean if you if you i 've ever seen the pictures they'd put an ox on a, on a grindstone and it would just turn the turn the grindstone and you 'd let the ox walk around in a circle and the idea was that the ox would not be muzzled and bound up he could bend down and pick up the straw and eat while it worked while, while it was working i was wondering why I said that paul in the new testament says that he uses this verse and he says he uses it for the payment of the elders of the church that when they serve they do not deserve to be muzzled it's in other words he's saying they're serving you pay them and so this is what he's saying. If you're working, you deserve to be paid is basically what this boils down to, even down to the ox himself. If the ox is busy working, you let the ox down and eat uh, from, the, from the straw and stuff that was left over. So again, God's showing that he cares even for what the rest of the world would think as an insignificant item. And God says, I care all the way down to your animals. The animal is working real hard, let him eat while he's eating while he's working in this. And God is looking at this. Don't muzzle the worker. And we read last week, you know, when it said that you're to pay your wages. And they paid by the day. You worked and you got paid that night. Every night you got paid when you got done working. And God says, don't withhold the pay from the laborer because He's taking that money and buying the food he needs for his family. And this is something we see even in our world. There's dishonest businessmen who don't always want to pay their wages. Sometimes they can't because they're poor businessmen. Sometimes they're just dishonest. But oftentimes, and those are the people that get themselves in trouble because government requires that that workers get paid. God requires that the workers get paid hear God saying, if somebody's working or something is working, it deserves to be paid. And uh, that's kind of just thrown in there. One quick verse, you know, let let the ox eat (laughs) while he's he's grinding out that grain. Verse 5, if brothers dwell together and one of them die and have no children, no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger for her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to be to wife and perform the duty of a husband and of a husband's brother unto her and it shall be that the firstborn shall which she bears shall succeed in in the name of the brother which is dead that his name be not put out of Israel this is the kinsman redeemer principle that we're going to see applied in the story of Ruth if you remember the story of Ruth uh, Naomi and her husband go out. Her sons get married to uh, to Moabite women. the The husband dies. The two boys die. Ruth comes back. She tells her daughter-in-laws, "You know, hey, you don't have any reason to come back. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have any more kids to be able to." to perform this duty you know, of, of raising kids to you for my, my family's names. You just be here, worship your gods, and we know the story. Ruth says, where you go, I will go, and follows Naomi. And Ruth is catches the eye of Boaz, who Boaz is a near kinsman, not the first kinsman, he is a near kinsman. And a kinsman redeemer buys back the land, buys back what belongs to another brother. And this is what this is all about here. You have two brothers and it says, if brothers dwell together, and this actually literally means they, they are united, they are, they are in unity. Not necessarily they still live in the same house or anything, but they are brothers and they are caring about each other. In other words, being a family, <laughs> where you're going to care about your family's honor, your family, your family reputation. And it says one of them dies and doesn't have any children. Then that brother is to help out his brother's name. And name is really important to you in this. And we see this all through the scriptures. That when you have a family name, you want your family to continue. Now she had a baby, would he still marry her if her brother died? They they allowed polygamy, so they could have if he won. But he wouldn't be mandated to if she had a male child but without any children no male heir then and even the female they could get away with because Moses has already dealt with that the the daughters of uh one one man who died with no 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 boy said why why should we not get an inheritance uh, and Moses went before God and God said they are right but he put if, if you remember they put one restriction on them they could not marry outside of their tribe because they didn't want the inheritance to leave the tribe and go to another tribe god has always been part of this and it's very important and it's i don't know if it's as important today as it used to be that the family name goes on it doesn't seem to be uh in general but in in the older days when you owned your property and it wasn't mortgaged to the hilt and you actually owned something that were going to go into inheritance your family name was important to you you wanted your family legacy to continue wanted your family farm to continue so it usually went to the oldest child and the second oldest did something else in their life or unless he went unless the oldest did something it's becoming less and less important for people to get married and have children and carry on a family legacy and that's part of the idea of nuclear family as opposed to the extended family when everybody was close together and you depended on one another and now that we're all separate how many people have haven't seen their family in a long time because of the distances that they have moved away from them. And some people have not seen any relatives. So this idea here is not quite as important to us this day, but probably should be in some ways. You call it the nuclear family, and what's the other one? Extended family. Nuclear family is mother, father, kids. And the extended would include grandparents, aunts, uncles. The one that's actually close together. They're just, you, you are intimately related to one another. Extended family. family. That was the days when you lived in the same town, you, you got married, you lived in the same town. You probably went to mom or grandma's house for, for lunch after, uh, lunch after church and the whole family gathered there. So you were always around your aunts and uncles and cousins and nuclear nuclear family is just, uh three you know two three four five people and not usually even in the same town they don't even really know their relationships i mean they know their names and that stuff probably but they don't know them there's no relation but in the in the past and it isn't so long ago even in america where you pretty much stayed where you were born and Everybody in town was basically related to each other in some, some way, format, you know, because you were in the same town. Sometimes you see it in some churches where they've been around for a long time and the kids grow up in the church. Who do they know? The other kids in the church, they end up usually kind of marrying in and the families start becoming one, not just one spiritual family, but they also become a literal family tied together. And you see that a lot of times in, in churches. And But this one here is saying that God is telling them that if there's no child, his name is not to be taken out. And the brother, the nearest kinsman, would go in. And as we have in the case of Ruth and Boaz, the first child that was born to Ruth and Boaz, and if you read it carefully, was called Naomi's child. Okay, because it was to replace her sons. So when, when they had their firstborn son there, who was Boaz uh, was uh, um, Jesse. He was not Ruth and and Boaz's child. Theoretically, legally, he became Naomi's. They of course helped, you know, were the ones that took care of him because of Naomi's age. But it was Naomi's replacement child, and this is God looks at as Jesus being our redeemer. He's the one that brings us back into the family and restores the family name. And so we look at that. And it says that her husband's brother or the brother-in-law shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's bro- a brother-in-law and her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall be confirmed to the name of the brother which is dead that his name should not be put out of Israel. Now remember, they're not in the promised land yet, but when they go into the promised land, the land is going to be divided by lot to the different tribes. The tribes are going to divide their section of land to families. Then the families are going to divide their name down down to levels where each person gets a portion of land and this land is theirs for perpetuity okay and remember this is the whole purpose of the golden jubilee the closer they get to that 50 year mark if they've sold their land or if they've put it in loan or or rented out technically they rent their land they never sold it it would be returned to them at on the end of the 50 years every on the golden jubilee it would be returned back to the owner of the land and this is something that god says your land belongs to the family. So it's very important that the family name doesn't die out. So God says, the near, the brother's going to do it. Now, in Exodus, he goes even deeper. If there's no brother to do it, then the father or the uncle is to take that. And if it's not the father or uncle, there's a whole listing of things on who the next kinsman redeemer. And this is where Boaz tells Ruth, he goes, I really want to be your kinsman redeemer, but there is a closer kinsman to you and this is goes into the second part of this verse 7 and if the man like not to take his brother's wife and let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say my husband's brother refuses to rise up unto his brother a name in Israel he will not perform the duty of the of my husband's brother then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him and if he stand Stand to it and say, I'd like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come in unto him in the presence of the elders, and loose his shoe from his office foot, spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that has no has a shoe loosed. <laughs> uh, and again, if you, if you remember back to the story of Ruth, when Boaz goes to the gates, Boaz is the one that actually initiates it, slightly different from what it's told in Deuteronomy. He goes and says, he calls the brother, or the nearer near, near kinsman and says, you know, uh, Naomi's field needs to be bought back. And he goes, yeah, I'd love to have her property. And he goes, well, with that field comes Ruth, And and the first child belongs to Naomi, which then takes that field back to to that first child, our first son. And he goes, no, I can't do that. And if you remember in the story, the shoe is taken off, and it doesn't talk about the spitting in the face, but if it's following Deuteronomy law, he would have been been spit in the face, and the shoe taken off. And he says, I'm not going to do the duty. I'm not going to raise up a name for somebody else. And, you know, this is something that we don't fully comprehend. And I can't imagine trying to do, having to do this, you know, because number one, we don't have polygamy in our, in our system and all of that. But the idea of this is an interesting idea that says the family's name is not going to be eliminated. And they were going to do what it took to happen. And this man, basically, it was an insult to him to say, no, I'm not going to keep my brother's name alive and that's why he has this spitting in the face yeah uh, this is serious i mean spitting in somebody's I face know. is a is a it's always been a sign of total disgust in most countries it is about the worst thing you can do is spit spit on somebody and it is a uh, it is a great dishonor and the wife the wife who is being rejected or the the sister-in-law who is being rejected is the one that was supposed to do this. Now, obviously, by the time we get to the story in Ruth, some factors of this law have changed. And, uh, but this was a job, and it was an important thing for the brother to do to be able to protect his brother's line. And it's something that has been going on even before God puts it in the law. If we read back in Genesis and we see Judah's got a son who dies, and he gives the he gives the wife to his other son, She and he dies, and he's got a younger son and says, wait for this son to grow up, and you'll get him, and he decides not to give her to him, and then we have a whole long story of her tricking him and and uh, showing up like a prostitute and, and ending up being impregnated by Judah, and he wants to kill her for being a prostitute, and she shows, well, let you decide who's, whose stuff these, the, these are that, that I'm holding and it happened to have been his. But it's always been out there because the name and the family line uh, lineage was always important. It was always important to have the, the family name honored. And this is God saying, he puts in rules for it. And he makes it a mandatory thing. He says, you're my people and I want you to follow my rules. And this is God always telling us, I have told you to do this, I expect you to do it. And for us as Christians, we need to be able to take that same situation. When God tells us to do something, He expects us to do it. Now, we are rebellious. We don't always do what He tells us to do. Sometimes we don't even recognize them necessarily as as commands because they don't read His commands in the English Bible as often. But many things are commands go make disciples even in english that is a command but in in greek it is very obvious that it's an imperative it's a command but god tells us to do certain things and he expects us to be obedient he expects obedience and we oftentimes have trouble with obedience and i don't know about everybody else but i know i sometimes have trouble with obedience getting better over the years but i've I've had my troubles with obedience and what we need to be able to do, and God gives us a command, or He talks to us, and saying, "Okay, God, how high? How far? How long?" <laughs> Not, "God, how how slow can I be in this in this line and be obedient?" Many Christians will ask, "How close can I come to something without being disobedient?" Wrong question completely. God, how close can I can I get to stealing something and not be stealing? How close can I get to, to, the, to somebody who's not my spouse and not cross the line into adultery? How, you know, how close can I do this? How, how many times can I skip church and not, and not be disobedient to being faithful to the, to the fellowship? How many times, God, can I not read my Bible and be, be fed and be, you know, our questions almost always are, how much can I get away with and not be, sinning instead of how obedient can I be and this is something we need to keep in mind because if if we're trying to see how close we can get to a line eventually we will cross that line. Our goal should be to stay as far away from the you know from the cliff as possible not stand there on the edge of the cliff and say okay how far can I bend over before I fall whoops I went too far I'm falling falling over the cliff that's not what we should be doing we should be saying, okay, that's a pretty deep cliff over there. I want to stay away from that edge. But God knows our desires and our heart is to be disobedient. And here we see that God says, His name, His reputation in verse 10 shall be He, His name shall be called the house of Him who is, has his shoe loosed. How would you like that to be your name? Yeah. I'm sure this had a different word in it, you know, had one word in it. But you know you go around and you na- and the name everybody's calling you about your reputation is he basically he that he that won't won't raise up c- children for his for his family, for his brother. That would be a serious shoe untied. Shoe untied, yeah. <laughs> foot loose. Huh? Foot loose. <laughs> foot loose. Shoe shoe loose. Shoe on the other foot or something. But It could be sandal shoe. Sandal technically is correct because they didn't. The sandal is what they had in those days. So, uh, but this is written in the one I'm reading is in King James. So it it says shoe. So, but we see God saying, "You're going to keep the name of your relatives alive. Your property needs to have a heir. Always had to have an heir." And an heir was always the most important thing in a family. It had to have an heir to carry on the name. And not just the name, but everything that belonged to that name. The house, the farm, the, everything else went to, went to at least one child. And God's saying, if there's no child, then their nearest kinsman is going to make sure that child is there. Verse 11. When men strive together one with another and the wife of the one draws near to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smites him and puts forth her hand and takes him by the secrets then they shall cut off her hand your eyes shall not pity her and this one is just as as it says if she grabs him by the by the uh... genitals then she was going to be punished her hand was going to be cut off And. If you remember again when we were reading in, in in Leviticus and Exodus it wasn't just a woman that if they did that it was anybody that grabbed another person at the genitals it was a serious crime. Uh so Yeah, everybody had their hands are other <laughs> The other guys. Oh, yeah. The other guys she's trying she's trying to stop them from fighting. And she's trying to protect her husband and she gets too aggressive and grabs him where well, knows it hurts, but there's also literally the word in the Hebrew talks about the, the part that excites. Uh, and that's what they're saying is that she's grabbing him on a part that causes other, other feelings, not just pain, but can also, even if there's no pain involved, it's an excitement that draws him into lust. She has caused great problems. So her hand was to be cut off. And again, God is saying, you can't just do anything and justify it. I was just protecting my husband. You know, it's not going to be an excuse to do anything. And this is what God is always saying. He basically says the ends do not justify the means, which the world is always the ends justify the means. Do whatever you want as long as you get what you want is the world's way of thinking. And God's saying no you're going to be righteous you're going to do things the right way because it is right just as God will always do what is right he will not do what's wrong to get a good result and this is something we see so often with people well I just want this to happen so I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do this and God says no that's not what is going to happen Verse 13, you shall not have in your bag diverse weights, a great and a small. You shall not have in your house diverse measures, in a great, a great and a small. But you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shall you have, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteous are an abomination unto the Lord your God. All right. This is very much what it's, what it says. In many places, the merchants would have two different weights in their bag and they would look like the same one, but they would be shaved or hollowed or whatever. And when they bought something, they would weigh it with the light rock and and say, "Oh, your 10 your pound loaf of bread is only nine pounds." okay But they would say ten. they would put a ten pound rock a weight on it and it was and it, but it would weigh out it may, maybe nine pounds because the rock itself was lighter. Then they, when they got ready to sell that same 10-pound <laughs> loaf of bread or whatever, basket of wheat, they would sell it by putting an 11-pound rock on there and sell you 11 pounds of wheat, which is still only 10 pounds of wheat. Okay? And God's saying, you aren't to do business like that. You are to be honest. And then he talks about measures and this would be literally what it sounds like a measuring cup a measuring spoon you weren't to have one that was slightly bigger when you were you know you're lending out to your neighbor and you use a use the little spoon <laughs> the one that 8 tablespoons lighter than the other one and then when you get it back you measure it out with your big you know your big one and say I want this filled <laughs> he's going you're to be honest you're to be just with one another and this is something that even in our day, even though we don't use weights and measures anymore, we still need to be honest. This this idea can be expanded to car salesman who says, this car was only driven by a little old lady, you know, once a week to church when it was beat to death by some teenager. But they give you this long story about how, how gentle this car was tr- treated as they had poured sawdust into the into the transmission to, to make it sound good for, for for three days until you took it off the lot. But it takes, basically it's saying, again, we expand this. Be honest in your business dealings. Have integrity. I have met people that say, well, we can say whatever we want to make a sale. It doesn't really matter. No, God says be, have integrity. and. I, I actually know one Christian businessman who said you could lie to the customers because they're not Christians. First off, how do you know they're not Christians? I mean this is this is a Muslim ideal. You can tell tell non-Muslims anything you want and you're not and you're not lying to them because they're not Muslims. And this is just it. God says we're to have integrity. Not just to fellow brothers, but to everybody. Because this is not saying you're to have just weights only with other Israelites. It is You are to have just weights and measurements only, only. You're to tell the truth. And this takes us back into the whole idea of what is truth, according to the Bible, is telling what you know about something. And if you don't tell what you know, then you've lied to them. You know that something is in in its last legs and you don't tell somebody when you sell it and you sell it at a premium price because it looks good and it breaks two weeks later and you say well it was used you got what you you know you know, you know buyer, buyer beware but God is saying be just be truthful be honest always and this is something that goes against our human nature our human nature is very much you know buyer beware uh, you know if I can get away with it is good for me if it you know we're selling this as-is, and if somebody really emphasizes that as-is, they're probably knowing something is wrong with it. But this is what God's saying. Be honest. If you know something is, is not in good shape, then you really need to be telling people. Yeah, the seat's <laughs> missing. Yeah. We're selling you this car. It doesn't have an engine. <laughs> Don't try to drive it anywhere. We're going to sell it to you, and we're going to sell it to you at a high price. Uh, as-is, as you bought the car a new engine. Get it out of here. It's yours. No, we see this all the time in the in the world because they're trying to deceive yeah. you, and that, and God and God is very clearly saying, don't be deceptive, don't cheat people, and we see this over and all the, over and over. But He says, why should you do it? And I love this, that the days, uh, your days may be lengthened in the in the land which the Lord your God gives you. God rewards integrity. God rewards honesty. And this is one of the things we look at people who are godly. They tend to live longer, happier lives than people that don't do it. Now, is it an absolute fact that you're going to live longer and, and, and better? No. Bad things happen to people that are righteous and in, and have integrity. And we So we want to be careful, but God does say... That you're going to lengthen your life. I know it's absolutely to make you feel better. You're going to be able to sleep at night. You're going to sleep better. You're going to feel better. You're going to your conscience is going to be clean when you when you're dealing right with people. You don't have to to worry about getting caught. Most of us grow in this area, and and the longer we walk with Him, the more integrity and more honesty that we should be getting. So no matter where you're at now, there's going to be a place where you can have, be more honest, more, have more integrity. The, the things you might think you can get away with, you'll go, no, I can't do it. So that you go, I, you point out, you automatically point out the stuff and you say, this is wrong, this is wrong, but this is the price I'm selling it. And then on the flip side of this in verse 16, for all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord God. And this is a, abomination is a strong word. It literally means a disgusting thing. It's something that when you walk upon it, it looks so bad that it makes you sick to your stomach and it's disgusting. Those who do that kind of stuff are an abomination. The sad thing is in our day, even as Christians, how often do we look at something that is sinful and wrong and it doesn't disgust us? Part of it is because we see so much of it on television and movies and books, that we have been kind of seared to how bad it is. How many, you know, they say that, you know, the average person has watched, you know, what is it, uh, 80 to 100 murders a week on television if, you, if you're not watching, you know, and a lot of stuff that you can watch. And there's probably that many on some shows on one show sometimes that, that have that many murders. And it does desensitize us to it. We're seeing so many people that are homosexuals on the, on the TV that we're being desensitized to the act and and the disgustingness of it. it Yeah, Yeah, we're seeing so much adultery and fornication that we're being desensitized. But it should be disgusting, it should be our minds attitudes should go, God hates this and I can't stand being part of it. And we need to be able to do just as you say, it comes on. Change the channel. Get get rid of it. If more Christians did this kind of stuff to the shows that are being broadcast, and actually lived as Christians and turned those shows off, the entertainment industry would stop making them because you there would be very few people watching it. The problem is too many Christians aren't disgusted on it. They live in a worldly, carnal lifestyle that says, "Oh well, it's just." it's part of life, I'm going to watch it. Which is the huge debate that goes on, is the is the entertainment network reflecting reality or creating reality? And it's both. It really is both. They are pushing the envelope and people accept it and the more people accept it, the more it appears to be reality. Uh, they push it as far as they can and the thing is they always have. Not just the television industry, even back before that when they were doing plays, they pushed the limits of whatever they were allowed in their culture to push in. There's nothing new under the sun and much of what went on. We have new ways to deliver what is out there but there's it's always been. Nothing new under the sun is very much a true statement. It's things have been worse than they are today. We are getting close to the, as being as bad as Noah's day but it has always been the cycles. Righteousness and unrighteousness have come and gone. and. We see it over and over, all through history. The problem is that people don't study history or they read the revised histories that people have written. They don't read original documents and they just read people's opinions about it. And the old statement, and I believe that it comes from the Greeks, is those who who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. People over the years, but it keeps getting repeated and it's it is true it is true that we keep doing what has been done in the past good and bad but if we know history then we can know what to do for the right and if we don't know it we will probably fall into the wrong again Mm -hmm. and this happens over and over again because history is important why do we do much of what we do in the Christian church most people don't know because they don't know church history what we do in the in the church Is really not necessarily biblical it is what we've done by tradition and how many how many times do we have people that have trouble with having a one-hour service if you go you you go slightly over an hour people are like you know how how come it went that long and it's funny that just a few years ago there was a pastor who said that there's going to come a day when people will not be will will not tolerate a three-hour service and he thought it was a big deal that they wouldn't tolerate the three-hour service. And that meant that they were going over three hours in a norm. And in, in our church, we're pretty good. People don't get too upset when, when I go over an, over an hour. But I have seen churches where if the pastor goes over an hour, the church service goes over an hour, you've got people who will literally walk out because it went too long. But again, it's what are you willing to do? What is important to you? Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto you by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met you by the way and smote the hindmost part of you, even all that were feeble behind you when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. And this is a story, this is the only place where this story is mentioned. Now we do know that the children of Israel fought with the, uh, uh, Amalek, and it was their first really big battle, and that's where when Moses held up his hands, they were they won, and when his hands dropped, they, oh, yeah. they fell, and Aaron and, and Hur held his hands up so that they would be able to, to win the battle, and they won the battle. This goes into why they fought the battle, and it's the only place it's mentioned, and they did it because Am- Amalek very cowardly went after the old and feeble at the end of the line because you know how... On a long line the, the fast ones would get someplace first and the, the slower, weaker ones would kind of drag out and they're saying, remember what he did to you. He he went after the weak. And this is, this is Satan's strategy. Satan likes to attack the weak Christians, the ones that get out of fellowship, the ones that hang off by themselves. And this is why it's very important. If you are not reading your Bible, you are not... Praying, you are not in fellowship with other believers, you most likely will fall by the wayside at some point. And this is one of the reasons that I'm concerned because I've seen it over the years. People come in, they're really strong for God, they seem to be on fire. Next thing they start going to less services and less services. Next thing you know, you haven't seen them. Then you see them two years later and you ask, Well, where are you going to church? Oh, I haven't been to church since I left left that church. Well, why not? Well, I don't know. I just got too busy or what. you know. And they give you a whole long list of stories, but Satan will pick off the person who is isolated. You will not stay on fire for God isolated. It happens. I know it for a fact because when I started being in my workaholic stage and I stopped going to church, very quickly I stopped really being on fire for God. I still believed in God. I still... Would read my Bible about every other week. I would still pray once in a while. I witnessed probably, I wit- remember witnessing a lot. I think it was because I was convicted every time I witnessed that <laughs> I would think to myself, what a hypocrite. You haven't even talked to God and now you're telling these people they need to know God. But this is the way Satan works. When you isolate yourself and drag away from the rest of other people, you're going to be a target for the enemy. And Part of our job as Christians is to reach out to those who are falling away. And I've shared this with people. I as a pastor can go out and talk to people and they go, okay, you're just doing your job. Now I would talk to them even if I wasn't the pastor and give them a card or whatever. But you know, if the body members actually reach out and make a call, call or, a, or a letter and say, hey, I just missed you, come on back. A lot of times that has more impact on somebody than the pastor calling them because they expect the pastor to call them you haven't been there for two weeks, you know, three weeks, they expect the pastor to call, check in on them. They don't necessarily expect the rest of the body to do that. And it's important for us to reach out and guard those that are feeble and walking falling behind. Help them, encourage them. Because in Hebrews we're told, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching. One thing I hear so often from people is, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that is true. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. If you want to be walking with God, you're going to have to be in the church because you will fall flat on your face if you're not walking with God. And I'm not, I'm not even going to say you might not. I say you will. Because in 40 plus years of walking with God, I've watched people get away from the church and fall flat on their face I can't think of a single person who has grown and not been part of the church somehow somehow some way be part of a church even if it's just a small two or three member body together if you isolate yourself from all other believers you will fall away from God and it is just the way it is and so God says, Remember, remember that coward who attacked the weak. And they went into battle with him. Verse 19, therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God hath given you rest from all your enemies around about in the land that the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the remembrance of, of Amalek from under the heavens. You shall not forget it. In other words, once you get into the promised land, the Amalekites would be destroyed. If you remember, this was, this was fulfilled when Saul became king and he went to fight the Amalekites and God said to him, kill all of the Amalekites, kill all their animals. And when Saul comes back to, to Samuel, Samuel goes, have you obeyed God? He goes, well, I've done everything that you told me to. And Samuel asked, well, what is this bleeding of the sheep? And he goes, well, we kept some of the good animals so we could sacrifice to God. And the answer was, does God require, uh, God requires obedience more than sacrifice? And then he goes, and what's the king doing here? Samuel took Saul's sword and cut the king of Mimelech up because Saul did not do it in battle. Obedience. God expects obedience. He wants obedience more than following man-made rules. He wants Obedience to Him more than trying to appear to be good, doing the right things. The scribes and Pharisees appeared to be doing the right things. They, they sh- pretended to do good things and, and, and honor God when their heart wasn't in it. And God wants our very heart. He wants everything in obedience, complete, complete and utter obedience. He wants obedience. He wants us to have wholehearted obedience too, not partial obedience. When He says do something, and this is why I say: his, when his, when God says to get up and move, you you go how fast, how how far? Not, not okay, God, I'll I'll get up tomorrow. That's not obedience. When I see people that eventually obey, they're showing their disrespect, their dis, you know their desire to be disobedient by being slow to obey. And God's not wanting slow obedience. He wants us to say, yes, God. So that's Jonah. Right? Jonah was slow obedience. It's human nature to be slow, slow in obedience. Our human nature is very slow to be obedient to rules, very slow to, to being obedient. And when God, when God says jump up and get moving, our, our answer should be how high and how far. Not, okay, God, I'll, I'll get to it eventually when I feel like it. And yet, for many of us, that is our answer to him. God, I'll, I'll obey you when I get around to it. And God saying, no, I want it now. It's kind of an amazing thing. So often, we have two different sets of rules. We expect everybody to be kind to us, and we want God's mercy and His grace as much as possible, but we don't want to apply the same terms to other people. And we need to understand that God is expecting us to be obedient, and He's going to be merciful, and He's going to be grace, full of grace, and we need to be like that to others. We need to be showing people as much grace as we want to see, as much mercy as we want to see, at least, if not more because we should be the same way. We should be showing God's love to them in a way that lifts them up. And grace is so wonderful. It's something we don't deserve. And I've heard it so many times. Well, they don't deserve me to treat them this way. Well, obviously they don't deserve you to treat them that way. You don't deserve God's grace. You, know, you don't deserve it either. So we need to be able to show God's grace. Anytime we find ourselves saying somebody doesn't deserve something, it's a great opportunity for us to show God's grace to that person. Not that they use us and abuse us, but we show them grace because that is what God does for us. He shows grace and He shows His love. He shows forgiveness. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this opportunity we've had to look at Your Word and look at the way You want us to treat others, that You want to see honesty and integrity. That you want to see obedience and honor and lifting up. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.